the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And, you know, Paul, uh, they could they could probably see us if they're watching this on YouTube. This is this must be uh, scary for them. <laughs> How exciting for them. That's lovely. <laughs> uh, tonight on the show, we are talking. This is an update on lipids. Paul, we're talking so much new ground tonight. My head is still spinning. Uh, we're talking about a whole bunch of new cholesterol lowering medications and some just sort of more. We'll call this advanced lipid management with returning guest. Dr. Erin Mikos, she's a cardiologist and a lipid expert. Um, we have a great co-host who you can you can see if you're watching the video, but if you're listening, then uh, wait a second. You'll you'll hear his his beautiful voice in a second. His but... dulcet baritone. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, uh, I I have a great pun for you, which I'm excited to get to. But first, can you can you tell the audience what is it that we do on the curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, Matt. As per usual, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, we are, as you mentioned, joined by, you know him, you love him. He doesn't need an introduction, but it is, it is Chris, the two man show. Chris, how are you? Great, man. Great. It's been awesome. It's been a while since I've been on the show. So Chris, can you tell us, uh, maybe tease for the audience uh, more? I, I talked a little bit about it, but what are we going to get to on this episode? And then can you tell them uh, about our guest? Yeah. So um, our guest is, we just had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Erin Mikos. You might remember her from our episode 191 from, you know, a little more than two years ago. She is an associate professor in the Division of Cardiology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine with a joint appointment in epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She is the associate director of preventative cardiology. Dr. Mikos is an internationally known expert in preventative cardiology and women's health, having authored more than 570 publications and 11 book chapters. Her research involves cardio obstetrics and women's cardiovascular health, coronary artery calcium, inflammation, other biomarkers, lipids, and diabetes and cardiometabolic disease. She's the co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Preventative Cardiology and associate editor of Cir for Circulation, a member of the board of directors for the American Society of Preventative Cardiology, and a member of the American College of Cardiology Prevention Le Leadership Council. She's also a member of the ACC's Clinical Quality Approval Committee and Dr. Mikos has also held several leadership positions within the American Heart Association, including being a member of the AHA Funding Committee. Today, she's going to school us in advanced management of lipids, including new treatments for patients with elevated LP little a, all the different types of PCSK9 inhibitors, and how they will fit into your LDL lowering armamentarium. I don't believe I wrote that in the script. I can't even say it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Paul... I wanted to tell you, you know, I'm a big fan of New York, but you'll never guess my favorite borough because it has the people there have the best cholesterol levels. I feel like I should be able to figure this out by context clues, but I, why don't you tell me? Paul, it's, it's Staten Island. Oh, that's, that's uh, actually pretty good. There <laughs> <laughs> we go. Thanks to uh, seven hilarious cholesterol puns.com for setting me up for that one. I'm sorry, Chris, what was the first thing that you played there by accident? What, what do we? This is the spooky. That yeah. feels better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Dr. Mikos did disclose that she has acted as an advisor to AstraZeneca, Bayer, Beringer, Ingelheim, Esperion, Novartis, Nova Nordisk, Pfizer. And we will say that we did discuss a balanced range of therapeutic options on this episode. We did not use trade names. Um, and uh, that's it. Enjoy the discussion. This episode is brought to you by Birch Living. And audience, you know that Paul and I are both huge fans of our Birch mattresses. Not only are they stylish and comfortable, but they are environmentally conscious because they're made right here in America and crafted with natural and organic materials that are sustainably sourced. That's right. They feature organic fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex. They create these luxurious mattresses that are going to give you a good night's sleep. And as I've told you before, I'm someone who the past few years, I, I was having a lot of trouble sleeping, but I've been actively working on my sleep, getting my mind right. And my Burt's mattress is a big part of getting me a good night's rest. And it's been going great, audience. Order your Birch mattress risk-free because guess what? They have a 100-night risk-free trial. It comes right to your door. It's easy to open. And their mattresses have a 25-year warranty. So what are you waiting for? Birch is giving $400 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. That's $400 off and two free EcoRest pillows. So sleep better with Birch. birchliving.com curb. Aaron, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us again. This was this was kind of set up on Twitter because we reposted your prior episode and now now you're back. Remind the audience a little bit about yourself and and maybe remind them of a hobby or interest you have outside of medicine. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me back. So I'm Aaron Mikos. I'm a preventive cardiologist at Johns Hopkins who has an interest in women's health and also lipids. Um, I'm a mother of a high school student, so I'm feeling old. And uh, my hobby is I like to run, um, although I'm pretty slow at it and not talented at it. But we've talked about before, I've been trying to do a marathon in every single state. So I'm working towards that goal. Paul, are you in that club of uh, a runner who's not talented and slow? I think you've told me that same, use that same phrasing, maybe. <laughs> All correct. And I'm, I'm pretty close to doing a marathon every state. I have like 40 nine-ish to go. Um, I feel like it's, it's just a matter of time before I catch up to you. <laughs> Paul, I believe in you. I, you, you know I, I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Well, we have a lot to get to tonight, uh, but we have Chu Man with us. So, uh, Chu Man, did you want to give a pick of the week before you, you read us a case from Cashlack? Yeah, I just want to remind people that we have this brand new series in the Curbsiders called the, the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine Series. And, and Dr. Carolyn Chan has been doing a fantastic job with it. And I recently uh, listened to their uh, buprenorphine episode uh, with uh, in the outpatient setting, and it was, it was fantastic. And as a provider who does um, outpatient MAT and MOUD, um, it, it, was, it was a great primer for anyone who's really interested in it. So I really encourage people to check it out. Yeah, so I think residency programs should just put that on their curriculum totally. uh, as required listening. Uh, but that may, I'm definitely biased, but I am uh, very proud of Carolyn and the whole team. Uh, they're they're just doing a fantastic job. Yeah, it's all killer, no filler, and every guest they have is just top tier, um, like hugely influential in the field, and just doing amazing work. So like, it's just it's a genuine pleasure to listen. I don't listen to medical podcasts, but this is one I actually listen to, even the ones that I'm not on. 
So yeah, great stuff. Well, let's get to a case from Cashlack because we we are going to geek out on some lipids tonight. There's a lot of new stuff for us to learn about. Chris, do you want to read us the case? Yeah. So we have a 45-year-old self-identified male patient who presents to the primary care clinic here at the Cashlack State for general follow-up. He is only on hydrochlorothiazide for a well-controlled hypertension, and he works a desk job and, and really isn't really physically active other than playing a little Beat Saber on his VR headset once in a while. Um, I don't know what that is. <laughs> typical of my patients, really just a... <laughs> he, uh, so, so he got pre-appointment labs because, um, you know, we're being really good about uh, getting our patients to do this so we can talk about him during his appointment. And his labs uh, include a non-fasting lipid panel with a total cholesterol of 242, an HDL of 51, a triglyceride of 114, and a calculated LDL of 168. Yeah, you know, we threw it through the ASCVD risk, uh, ASCVD risk estimator calculator, which gave us a 10-year risk of 8.7%. Um, and his only other pertinent history is that his father had an MI at age 47. So you know, I just want to make sure that um, our listeners go back, listen to episode 191, which came out, what, like two and a half years ago, uh, where we discussed like a lot of the the new, the ACCHA, like 2018 updates um, to just really get a good background on this. But I sort of, to start the discussion here, I just want you, uh, whether you could Talk to our listeners and remind us, what are sort of the different risk categories in assessing primary prevention? Right. So there's four groups that we've identified as statin benefit groups. So in primary prevention, individuals with LDLs above 190, this group is enriched with those who have familial hypocholesterolemia, so they would benefit from a high-intensity statin. Patients with diabetes over the age of 40 should have, be at least on a moderate-intensity statin. And then if they have risk factors, uh, high-intensity statin. Um, and then uh, individuals who are above a 20% 10-year risk score, um, those also are indication for high-intensity statin. And then individuals, you know, again, as part of a, a risk discussion, um, who we think are at high enough risk um, after a patient-clinician risk discussion. So this is, you know, you start with the pooled cord equations as a starting point, um, and then uh, consider these risk-enhancing factors, and we'll talk about this patient already has several of them, but if those are present, that would also favor the initiation of statins. And then sometimes even after estimating the 10-year risk score and considering risk-enhancing factors, there can still be uncertainty about an individual's risk. And in those cases, um, a coronary artery calcium score can be performed to help refine risk a little better and guide shared decision-making about preventive therapies like statins and, and possibly aspirin. I guess to, you, you mentioned the coronary calcium score. I wanted to see my experience, and, and Paul, I'm interested to hear yours, is the, the patients often have to pay out-of-pocket something like two or $300. So I've, I've had a couple of patients take me up on that. But in your case, Paul, is that, the, is that happening as well? It's at my area of cash, like not quite so pricey, but still out-of-pocket so far as I know. And it's not it's something that I, I commonly see done. Yeah. Erin, is there a good I way mean, to get these covered or... I mean, I, I don't know if you tried recently, but it's so much different now, so much easier than it was five to 10 years ago, because coronary calcium score is in the guidelines now as a 2A indication for just like these patients where there is some uncertainty about risk or and the net benefit of preventive therapy like statins. 
Um, and so the, it's in the guidelines as two-way indication. So most insurances cover it. But even if it's not covered, um, at least at my institution, it's $75 out of pocket. I mean, it's really a, a cheap test and certainly um, much cheaper than uh, many, you know, prescription medications or many other tests that we do for uh, for, for cardiology risk assessment. So I think the information that you get is very valuable. But I, I have not had a patient pay out of pocket for quite a long time Um Sometimes it still happens, but it's been so much infrequent uh, now compared to five years ago. Yeah. You know, I, I think the interesting thing about coronary CAC scores to me is if it's a non-zero score, okay, it's probably easier to convince the patient to be more aggressive about therapy. But if it's a zero score and they have risk factors, like they're 45, like this guy, have an LDL that's elevated, have a family history, maybe that's great news and maybe we should be more aggressive so nothing happens. Like, you know, once they have calcium. So like we we were talking in pre-recording about this idea of like cholesterol years. So can you talk how you talk to patients with a non-zero CAC score, but who you're still like, maybe they have diabetes or they smoke or they have a strong family history. Like, how do you handle that discussion? Well, so first of all, this patient already has two risk-enhancing factors. Um, you know, he is 45. He has an LDL above 160 and a family history of myocardial infarction. So I would already favor treating him with a statin. You know, the coronary calcium score is when there is risk uncertainty. Um, but getting back to the cholesterol years, absolutely. It's not just the magnitude of elevation um, of LDL, but the duration of exposure um, akin to, uh, you know, we think about pack years of smoking. So if there's this theoretical threshold, some have said about 5,000 milligrams for deciliters, uh, a milligram for deciliter years, that, you know, individuals who have, you know, high cholesterol from birth, such as those who have genetic FH, you know, they cross over this threshold, you know, early in life. On the other hand, individuals who have lifelong low LDL from either favorable genetics, um, you know, unhealthy lifestyle, you know, they may never cross over this threshold for the onset of clinical ASCVD. But it's important to keep in mind that even individuals who have mild to moderately elevated LDL, if they've been at that long enough, they will also cross over the threshold of clinical ASCVD, you know, earlier in life compared to their counterparts that have a uh, young, you know, lower LDL. And so prevention is really best uh, implemented when it's implemented early. I mean, it's never too late, but it's better to implement early. Um, and, you know, these 10-year risk cut points can really underestimate risk in, you know, younger adults. I mean, this patient at age 45, yeah, he might be at low risk over the next 10 years. But, you know, in a 45-year-old, I'm not wanting to keep him just healthy for the next 10 years. I I'm thinking about the next 40 years. And, uh, you know, he's been, his arteries have already been marinating in this high LDL of 160 for all these years. And, and I would treat him now, you know, you wouldn't not treat a 45-year-old with a systolic blood pressure of 160 um, just because he's only 45 and, you know, his 10-year risk is not above a certain threshold. We would want to avoid further vascular damage. And so, um, you know, I would strongly recommend treating him now. Um, but, you know, sometimes patients are 
reluctant for whatever reason. And there is, uh, you know, data suggests that knowledge of one's calcium scores uh, can be an effective strategy for someone to, you know, implement uh, statin therapy. Uh, and there's already preliminary data from, you know, the CoreCal Vanguard study from Intermountain Health show when they randomized uh, individuals to, you know, risk factor-based approach versus a coronary calcium-based approach. You know, at one year, those with a coronary calcium-based approach uh, were more likely to be on a statin and have their LDL and other risk factors controlled. So seeing is believing, and I think that's really helpful. But, you know, to get back to your point about a zero calcium score, you know, that should not supersede clinical judgment. So if a patient's actually having symptoms of ischemic heart disease, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be reassured about a, a zero score. Uh, so I put, you know, less stock in a zero score in a younger person. They might not have had time to calcify uh, their plaque yet, but it is uh, reassuring, um, you know, in an older adult uh, if their score is still zero. So one question I have. Yeah, so I was, oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Paul. I was just going to ask a little bit about, you know, we talked about CAC score a couple of times now, and I've definitely done this with a couple of my patients. And in my neck of woods, it's 99 bucks out of pocket if insurance doesn't pay for it. Um, so I often get these non-zero CAC scores. And so they're not super high. It's not like over 100 or whatnot. But then I also, in my report, you know, there's a MESA. You know, the, the MESA it, it score is also calculated and gives me sort of like this uh, estimated arterial age. And I was just wondering, like, what's the best way to counsel patients on what that means? So, you know, you know, I've had, you know, 50, 60-year-old who had, you know, so I say a 60-year-old and they did a CAC score and they said their estimated arterial age is like 40 or something like that. Like, I don't know what to say about that. I was like, okay, I guess it's, you're younger than what you're supposed to be at, but like, I also think you're, you know, that you still are at risk. Um, how do you counsel patients about that and how do you approach it? Well, any non-zero score is associated with risk, you know, in a graded fashion, but even scores one to 10 are associated with, you know, increased events compared to those with a zero score. So the guidelines had said, you know, uh, a statin is recommended if the calcium score is above 100, but she can be considered for any non-zero score. So that's how I practice, certainly any non-zero score. They have plaque, they have disease, so I start a statin. But particularly in younger adults, keep in mind that, for example, a, a 50 year a woman should have a zero uh, zero calcium score. So if her calcium score is ten, I mean that's a you know above the seventy fifth percentile for her age and gender. So uh, statins are also recommended uh, for calcium scores above the seventy fifth um, percentile. So I also you know um, benchmark it to age gender percentile. But this patient um, has multiple um, risk enhancing factors, and we can talk about whether we'd measure some additional risk enhancing factors you know here in a minute with his family history. Uh, I think we'll want to get into lipoprotein A. But I, again, I would already recommend starting a statin in him. And if he came to me and already had a zero calcium score, I would say, you know, that's great. Let's keep your arteries clean. You know, your father had a heart attack at a young age. Your LDL is above 60, 160. You know, I'd want to start you know, uh, a statin to, you know, why wait till there's disease? Uh, you know, I would start treatment um, now for prevention. Yeah, this leads now, into... Now, this is different than someone who is, you know, very low risk and has no risk factors. But I think this particular case patient, you know, has a high lifetime risk. That makes a great deal of sense. I, I guess the, the point that I was going to make, and this might transition into sort of when should we go hunting for additional risk enhancing factors, is it is 
It would be very uncommon for me to see a patient in my practice whose 10-year calculated risk is greater than 7.5% that doesn't already have some pre-existing risk-enhancing factor, which is maybe why I'm not doing a whole lot of calcium um, scoring, because I, I feel like I'm already kind of convinced this person might need statin therapy. But I guess what I'd be curious to hear from you, or if you could at least remind us, sort of when should we start chasing down some of those other factors? So like, for instance, I think we mentioned LP little a a couple of times, like when, when, for instance, would you check that and sort of can you just remind us the utility of that and how we should be using it? Yeah, so many of the risk-enhancing factors you already know from their clinical history. You know, for for women, you know, premature menopause or history of preeclampsia, if they have inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or, um, uh, you know, lupus, if they have chronic kidney disease, if they have a you know persistently elevated triglyceride, a non-fasting triglyceride above 175, uh, you know, these are um, many uh, factors that you already know about. Um, now, I... Uh, do check a lipoprotein A in, in all of my patients, uh, more in line with sort of the European guidelines, just because um, that the the field is moving and we may have new therapy to potentially um, offer those individuals, uh, you know, beyond statin therapy. And so in order, you know, when those drugs, if they turn out to be successful in trials, we'd want to know who to treat and we won't know who's elevated unless we measure it. So, um, in this patient, I would measure Lipertal A, particularly because he has a family history. Uh, Lipertal A you know, is highly genetic. About 90% of it um, is related to the Lipertal A gene. So it's highly heritable and it runs in families. Um, it's an LDL-like particle. So it has an ApoB moiety, like all the other bad atherogenic lipoproteins, including LDL. But it also has this apolipoprotein A moiety, and that's what distinguishes it from LDL. But so why do we care? Why do we measure it in this person um, and, and in other patients? Well, it's pro-atherogenic, it's pro-inflammatory, and it's pro-thrombotic, um, partly because I think it can carry oxidized phospholipids. But lots of evidence now from epidemiology studies and meta-analysis and Mendelian randomization and, you know, GWAS studies, as well as analyses of clinical trials, have really indicated a causal role of Lipertal A uh, with ASCVD and also uh, aortic stenosis. And it's pretty common. Um, you know, there's, uh, we can get into, there's important to know the different lab differences between um, whether it's measured in mass by milligram per deciliter or molar, which is nanomils per liter. It's important to know the difference because, um, you know, the cut points are different based on the assay. So it's important consideration when you're looking at these numbers uh, to make sure you know what units you're talking about. But using the mass units of a Lipertal A above 50 milligrams per deciliter, it's estimated that 1.4 billion individuals worldwide have elevated Lipertal A, uh, which is about 20 to 25 percent of the global population, or essentially that translates to one in five individuals. Um, so that's a lot. Uh, and it's been shown to increase risk, though, even in a linear fashion, even though I've mentioned these thresholds for elevated um, and even among individuals who have very low LDL, um, like in the Copenhagen study about individuals who had LDLs less than 70, elevated Lipertal A is uh, still a risk factor in those individuals. 
So I think it's important to know um, and why I would measure it in this patient, because um, it would be one more risk enhancing factor that certainly would favor more intensive treatment um, with his other risk factors, but also with statins, even though statins don't lower lipidal A, but also because, um, you know, we have emerging therapies that are in trials right now, which we can talk about. I want to try to recap just a little bit. LP little A, which we talked about last time. You said because it's highly heritable, you like to check it at least one time in people and in, in everybody. And we we think this has a causal role in badness like atherosclerosis and you said aortic stenosis. And being on a statin doesn't necessarily affect the levels. So it's not really something you're yet tracking over time. But we're gonna talk about some therapeutic targets for this where I imagine tracking LP little A might be something that's gonna be done. And then you said if you if your lab is reporting milligrams per deciliter that greater than 50 is where those those that seems to be one of the cut points where above that level people are at higher risk Right. So a couple of things there. So even though um, Lipertin A is primarily genetically determined and it's generally non-responsive to conventional lifestyle changes, uh, such as a low fat diet or weight loss or exercise, there are some things that can increase levels. So in women, for example, um, Lipertin A levels increase after menopause, after age 50. So that kind of challenges the notion of only measuring it sort of once in a lifetime because it may become elevated in women, um, you know, later in life. Uh, Other chronic kidney disease is associated uh, with elevated levels. If somebody, you know, developed kidney disease and they didn't have it before, that can affect their levels. Um, And acute inflammatory conditions. To be clear, who to measure Lipertin A in is some differences among guidelines as this is sort of an emerging field in the u.s guidelines the HAACC um, have said to measure it uh, consider measuring in people who have a personal history of ASCVD or a family history of ASCVD um, the NLA the National Lipid Association you know adds to that saying in addition to those if someone has an LDL that seems to be refractory or only partially responsive to therapy, um, you know, measuring Lipertil A because that might be contributing to the, um, you know, lack of response and LDL lowering because they have, you know, Lipertil A driving their LDL concentration. Um, they also recommended in measuring patients who have calcific aortic valve disease. But the European guidelines, which is I'm kind of in line with, um, they recommending it measuring at least once in all adults, um, uh, in, in all adults, uh, measuring it at least once because you want to identify those that have the very, very high levels that may have a risk similar to uh, familial hypocholesterolemia patients. And then for the the mass versus molar issue, so yes, know what your lab. So when you're reading a study in the literature, they'll report both values, and it's a little bit confusing. And the problem is, is that there's no direct conversion and the guidelines don't really recommend any direct conversion from milligrams to deciliter to um, nanomoles per liter because uh, this gets back to the issue of the heterogeneity and the APOA isoforms. Um, so when you're talking about um, uh, molar units, uh, that's sort of uh, more representation of the total number of particles in your blood as opposed to mass. So there's really no direct conversion factors. But if you want to do a back of the end, like really quick, rough estimate, um, one you know, says if you multiply your milligrams per deciliter by 2 or 2.5, 
that's sort of a best guess for your conversion of nanomoles per liter. But it's really um, not a simple conversion factor. Well, let's so let's get into talking about this, Chris. So what what's happening with our our patient and their LP little a? Did we check it? Yeah, so I think we decided to check the LP little a, and and it was it was elevated, and I, I didn't actually put in any numbers because I wasn't sure at the time. I was, I was like, I, I couldn't figure it out. So you let's know, see, um, it's one twenty. Yeah, let's throw that. Is that realistic? <laughs> I mean, so can people be like borderline high in LP little a, or is there, I mean, I, I think you said there were sort of cutoffs based on, are, are there people who can sort of sit in the middle and does that make a difference? So risk is continuous, just like LDL and our guidelines have some cut points for LDL, but you know, risk is continuous. And so, you know, there's, um, you know, higher is associated with greater risk. Uh, but the guidelines, U.S. guidelines have put above 50 milligrams per deciliter as a uh, th- what's considered a risk-enhancing factor. But interpretation of a value really is in the context of a person's absolute CV risk. Um, so, you know, it's someone who's otherwise low risk, you uh, be really focused on, you know, lifestyle and really optimizing all their other risk factors, having personalized recommendations for their LDL and their blood pressure and treating everything else. Higher risk patients, especially those who have ASCVD and progression of their ASCVD, you know, we definitely want to even think about more intensive treatment. So, um, as I you know mentioned, statins don't lower, and they may even increase lipoprotein A, but we still use statin therapy primarily because you know there's overwhelming evidence that statins reduce major adverse vascular events. So that's the background, you know, to lower the overall risk of cardiovascular events, even though statins don't lower lipoprotein A. Um, now, patients who have very, very high levels, who have progressive cardiovascular disease, and this is why, you know, risk really matters, you know, lipoprotein apheresis is an option um, for these very high levels. Um, now, if they have ASCVD, uh, both PCSK9 inhibitor monoclonal antibodies, as well as in clizarin, this new agent we can talk about, it's a small interfering RNA against uh PCSK9, those agents do lower lipoprotein A about 20 to 25%. So it is a, a good option if you have a high-risk patient who has ASCVD or has FH who needs additional LDL lowering and also has elevated lipoprotein A, um, this is a good agent to put them on PCSK9 inhibitors. Um, we know with the, with the note that PCSK9 inhibitors are not FDA-approved specifically for lipoprotein A lowering. But if the patient has other reasons, if they're a candidate for PCSK9 for other reasons, um, then, you know, that's uh, used in, in, in those patients. And that's why it's so helpful sometimes to measure lipoprotein A because I might go to earlier uh, use of PCSK9 if I know that's elevated. Um, a few other things that come up a lot with patients, even though niacin can lower lipoprotein A, we don't recommend that given the lack of clinical benefit in two outcome trials. Um, estrogen can lower lipoprotein A as well, but hormone replacement therapy is not recommended um, for the sole purpose of lipoprotein A lowering because it also um, hasn't been demonstrated to reduce outcomes. Um, and then current data doesn't really support targeting um, aspirin specifically based on lipoprotein A, although I tend to use it based on a sub-analysis of the women's health study that showed that um, women who had um, the gene for um, elevated lipoprotein A seem to benefit more for aspirin, but that really hasn't been um, you know, proven yet in trials. 
Um, so that's what we have today. But it's a really exciting time because now there's um, some emerging therapies uh, that are specifically targeting Lipergil A. Um, and we might have you know options for patients that we didn't have before. Chris, did you before, have a... Yeah, right before we go into this new therapy, I want to. There's one more medication I wanted to um, make sure I ask about. So you know, you said that we're really targeting. You know, if 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 like if if we need to, we're really targeting LDL lowering in general and, and sort of utilizing our, our sort of bag to do that. You know, we know that azetamide has been shown from the IMPROVE-IT trial to, to really, uh, as, a, as a great adjunct to, you know, high-intensity statin therapy that many, I think many of us use in, in, in our clinical settings before we go to PCSK9 inhibitors. Is that something that should be, should be thought about, or are we doing high-dose statin and then especially with, if the LP little a, we're going to be trying to get to, to that PCSK9 inhibitor outside of some of these newer medicines? Yes. Yeah, so, um, Azetamide and bempedoic acid don't lower Lipertil A, but they certainly lower LDL. And we absolutely, um, you know, use those agents and appropriate candidates who need additional LDL lowering. Um, and LDL still remains the primary target. Uh, so we definitely want to lower LDL first. Um, but I think it's important to kind of understand the reason why I um, measure Lipertil A is that uh, you know, on a standard uh, test, if you just get a standard lipid panel and you get an um, LDL, you, you don't know how much of that is due to um, lipoprotein little a. Um, and so some patients are not responding with their LDL lowering because they have uh, elevated lipoprotein little a. For example, you know, you might have a patient whose LDL is down to less than 70. Um, you know, you still should measure, if they're a high-risk ACV patient, uh, measure lipoprotein A uh, in, the, in those individuals. Because two people with relatively low LDL, less than 70, could have very different heart disease risk. Um, we think that, uh, for, for example, on average, every 10 milligram per deciliter of lipoprotein A in the blood increases LDL by about three to four milligrams per deciliter. So uh, if your lipoprotein A level is low, its impact on LDL is minimal. So if you have a person who has an LDL of 70, but a lipoprotein A of 10, that means like only, you know, 3% of their LDL is due to um, lipoprotein A. But on the other hand, if their LDL is 70 and their lipoprotein A is 150, you know, almost two-thirds of their LDL could be from lipoprotein A and have residual risk. And what does this matter? Well, this matters because we may um, use different therapies to potentially target this residual risk if it's being driven by um, elevated uh, lipoprotein A. And I just wanted to point out, you mentioned LDL is still our primary target. And earlier in this episode, you said we just have overwhelming evidence that essentially lowering LDL, we can lower cardiovascular risk. And I think we're going to get into this with talking about pelicarsin, which is one of the LP little a directed therapies. Do we have outcomes yet? Do we have a convincing model to say that LP little a, if we lower it, that we're going to lower risk? I remember several years ago, we tried to raise HDL. We thought it was going to work and it, that, that didn't end up working. Um, the targeted therapies there. So do you think, are you, are you thinking that this is definitely going to work or do, do we, how much do we know so far? Yes. So we don't have that outcome data yet. Um, I think some of the difference, and this is why there are no approved therapies for Lipergil A yet. This is all trial data. 
Um, but the difference is that we have a lot of genetic studies that have really um, shown that there's a causal role with Lipritol A, where we were never able to demonstrate a causal role um, from HDL that, uh, you know, Mendelian randomization studies uh, have not found HDL to be a causal factor. It's associated um, with, with risk, but it's not a causal factor. So, you know, because of that, it does seem to be likely that um, reduction in Lipritol A would reduce risk. Uh, we need to test this in trials because we really don't know how much, you know, for LDL, we know pretty linearly that, you know, for every one millimole per liter or 39 milligrams per deciliter that, you know, we can reduce major adverse cardiovascular events by 20 to 30 percent. And so we really see this consistently, but we don't really know um, how much lowering Lipritol A really translates into reducing events. In some modeling data suggests that you actually might need large reductions of Lipritol A, um, you know, lowering it by more than 50 to 100 milligrams per deciliter to really have a meaningful reduction in ASCVD um, events in a short term, like in a, over the period of a five-year trial. Um, so how much Lipritol A needs to be lowered to produce a clinically meaningful benefit remains uncertain, and that's why we await um, the results for these, um, the trials that are ongoing. Yeah, so, so if we, I, I guess now's a good time. Yeah, yeah. Chris, where, did you, where do you want to take it? I, w I was just going to ask then, sort of comes back to the, at the beginning of the dis discussion, you know, if, if we see a medication like Pilocarsin come, come, uh, come to market and be used uh, widespread, you know, do you think that then we'll be r routinely measuring LP little a for reduction like we do for our LDLs? So the agent that's the farthest along in trials, it's already in phase three cardiovascular outcome trials, is Pelicarsin. So this is an, the antisensitive nucleotide targeting Lipritol A. Um, and in phase two trials was shown to reduce Lipritol A by 80%. So I mentioned before that PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies only lowered Lipritol A by 25%. And this lowered Lipritol A by you know 80% or more. So that's very exciting. But we really need to know, you know, what does that translate to? Does that actually reduce cardiovascular events? And that's being studied right now in a very large cardiovascular outcome trial, um, you know, thousands of patients. Um, it's called the Horizon Trial. And hopefully we'll have the, some results from that by, you know, 2024, 2025. But like all cardiovascular outcome trials, you know, they're several years um, ongoing just uh, to, to have events. And, th and that trial is enrolling patients who have ASCVD and elevate a light virtual A. Um, another agent that's not too far behind in development is Ulpasarin. Now, this is a small interfering RNA. It's also tar targeting the messenger RNA for light virtual A. Um, and uh, earlier this uh, spring, um, it was announced, I don't think it's published yet, but the top line results from the Ocean 2 um, Ocean uh, study, which is a phase two trial, that enrolled, you know, 281 individuals, so small numbers because it's a phase two. Um, but in this phase two trial, this agent also lowered Lipritol A by 90%. So again, very effective. And in this, you know, smaller phase two trial, there was no safety concerns. Better name, and then better name than Horizon as well, Paul. I, yeah. Well, this was well, this shock is ocean, ocean hasn't used before. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, <laughs> yeah. I cannot believe that they have not crossed it off the list yet. But very exciting. Yeah. So this was Ocean Dose. This was phase two, where Horizon was the, you know, is, a, is for Pelicarsen is the is a phase three. But um, you may have read about the Apollo trial, which was published in JAMA in April. 
Now, this was only a phase one trial, so we're now talking very small numbers, 32 participants. Um, but this is another small interfering RNA uh, against Lipertil A, um, SLN360. And in the Apollo trial, which was published earlier this year, of these 32 participants, this agent also lowered Lipertil A by about 90% compared to placebo. So these drugs seem to, you know, lower the target, Lipertil A, and in phase one, phase two trials seem to be safe, but we really need the larger outcome trials um, before, certainly before there would be any FDA indication or before they would be available for, for patients. But it's important to know these are coming down the pipeline because we can start by finding out which of our patients have elevated lipoprotein A. I was going to ask about, just to confirm, Pelicarsin once a month injection is, is what it seems like it's going to be in the, in the Horizon trial. Is that, is that right? I guess. Yeah. And then, yeah. So all of these, these are subcutaneous injections, um, you know, uh, and they're, they've been looking at different, um, you know, dose finding, um, you know, like in the ocean trial as well, they compared different doses. um, uh, So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see what turns out to to pan out to be the best. Yeah. So Um, it's seeming because these are subcutaneous, because these are brand new, I'm guessing that at least in the next 10 years or five or 10 years, these are mostly going to be limited to very high risk patients, probably in specialty clinics that have like known, like really strong risk factors. I mean, like our 45 year old that we started with who hasn't had any events yet, even with a really high, we, I think we gave LP little a of 120. Do you think this would be someone that would, would qualify anytime in the near future? Well, these drugs are not available, but he, um, you know, he may, uh, you know, with his family history and his elevated LDL, uh, he, you know, uh, you know, I would have to examine him and, you know, he, but he may have some risk factors for FH and you certainly could consider genetic testing in him. But if he had an elevated leverage A or certainly if he had, um, evidence of ASCVD, sometimes I'm, you know, if I can't control their, their, you know, their LDL on, on statins and azetamide, I might use a PCSK9 inhibitor in these patients. So I have been able to get PCSK9 inhibitors approved in patients with very high calcium scores, mm-hmm. you know, above 300, a calcium score above 300. The event rate is fairly similar to a secondary, a stable secondary prevention population. So some of my patients who haven't had an event yet, but they have evidence of significant subclinical disease, you know, have evidence of, you know, uh, clinical, you know, evidence by imaging that they have atherosclerosis. I have been able to get PCSK9 inhibitors approved, um, again, uh, targeting their LDL, but knowing that, you know, it has some effect on their lipoprotein A. Well, Chris, I think we should move on the case and yeah. let's, because we still have some more new agents to talk about. Yeah, yeah. And so we, now we're talking. Some that are already approved. <laughs> yeah. The ones I was right. talking about, the ones yeah. weren't approved yet. The... So we've already sort of transitioned a little bit into the PCSK9 inhibitor discussion. But so we're taking our patient. He has an LDL. Say he has an LDL now in, of, of 250. And based on, you know, the 2018 guidelines, we, you know, we need to shoot for a really low LDL. You know, our guidelines, these guidelines say less than 100. So. After we start him on maximum dose statin therapy, his LDL still 115, and we even added, you know, some azetamide just for good measure. You know, we're looking at PCSK9 inhibitors as our next step. Can you sort of um, give us a little update from the last time we talked? We we did talk a little bit during that last episode about PCSK9 inhibitors, but um, I think there have been qu- quite a few new uh, versions of this have come out, including 
other types of monoclonal antibodies and some other ways in this which these drugs are are targeted. Is that correct? Yeah. So you know, if we um, he likely with an LDL of two fifty has his family history of his father having MI. You know, he'd be have um, FH, and so. Uh, if we were not able to get his LDL down um, enough, uh, we probably wouldn't be able to. With high-intensity statins, you'd have about a 50% lowering of LDL, and then with azetamide, another about 18% lowering. So we wouldn't be able to get to target likely with that. So I would move early with combination therapy, and I just want to make the plug that you know, if you know where you need to go and where you're starting, uh, you know, I think we waste too much time with sequential therapy. Just like with blood pressure, you know, you start combination therapy early. And I would strongly recommend early onboarding of combination therapy, trying to get um, patients uh, to goal. Because, you know, unlike blood pressure or diabetes, who has theoretical risk of, you know, hypotension or hypoglycemia, there really is no risk of having, you know, too low of LDL. So I would really onboard these early. So he would be, um, you know, a great candidate for PCSK9 inhibitor. We have two monoclonal antibodies that are already FDA approved, Evolacumab and Alaracumab, and those both have clinical outcome data. So not only do they lower LDL, uh, but they also reduce major adverse cardiovascular events by at least 15%. And there's data also showing, you know, even a legacy effect from those trials that those that had, you know, earlier um, treatment with the PCSK9 and had earlier lowering of LDL had, um, you know, greater reduction than people who started the PCSK9 later after the trial is over. So earlier onboarding is definitely important. Um, now, the new kid on the block in this category I mentioned a little bit earlier is Inclizerin. So it is a small interfering RNA that's targeted against PCSK9. I was talking earlier about small interfering RNAs targeting Lipertil A. This one's targeting PCSK9. So the um, evolacumab and alaracumab um, are monoclonal antibodies um, targeting uh, uh, PCSK9, and this is um, preventing the synthesis of PCSK9. So uh, this also has that um, Galnac um, conjugation that really allows liver-specific binding. Um, so what's the advantage of this is that it has a longer pharmacologic duration. Um, after you do the initial injection, and once again at three months, then you go to every six months. Um, and they, it's been shown um, in the Orion trials to lower LDL about 50%, which is, you know, considerably longer duration um, to lower this again for over six months compared to the monoclonal antibodies, which are given every two weeks. So this is FDA approved. For patients with ASCVD or patients who have FH that haven't been able to get to LDL goal. Now, I will mention that we don't have the outcome trial yet for um, in, in Clizerin. Um, Orion 4 is the dedicated cardiovascular outcome trial, um, and it's uh, currently examining this. But it did get FDA approved because, uh, you know, we know it lowers LDL. And, you know, we have a really good sense of, you know, lowering LDL um, should translate to, uh, to, to benefit. So some of the unique things about this is that so this was just FDA approved in December 2021. But the injections are meant to be given in a clinical setting. And so, um, so that the monoclonal antibodies patients give to themselves at home, uh, but this is usually given in a clinic. And so different um, institutions and different practices have been trying to figure out how to sort of onboard it and, um, you know, where to, where to give it. Sometimes they're given at infusion centers or, you know, given in the clinic itself or other locations, uh, but it's sort of more of a buy and build model where, um, you know, a practice may uh, buy 
the doses and then, um, you know, then bill for each administration that they give. Yeah, I, I think the any of these injectables, I think they're just going to be at least for for in, for the primary care offices. It's it's going to be a while. Like usually in my experience, these things are first given in specialty offices. I think our main role in the near term, my Paul, tell me what your where your head's at with this. I think probably is going to be identifying who might benefit and referring to to people like yourself that that know what to do with these. But Paul, what are you thinking? No, it's there. There's a handful of the uh, folks that I have started on the PCSK nines, kind of independently, and a lot of times I, the model does sort of look like what you're suggesting, where I send someone off with a specific question: "Hey, would this patient benefit from this agent?" and sort of let them fight the good fight. I guess I, I had a question about the um, in glycerin specifically. I feel like the when I see the PCSK nine inhibitors used, it's almost always in the setting of statin intolerance, not so much not achieving goals. So someone who has high risk or in secondary prevention land, but they just cannot take a statin, and their cholesterol is not where it needs to be. Um, that's typically where I see the PCSK9 inhibitors uh, approved or at least approved early, easily. I guess what I'm wondering in terms of the inclycerin, do we see that as a replacement for a statin therapy or as, as adjunctive therapy? Because the 50% reduction is actually not, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's relatively comparable to a high intensity statin. So would you continue a statin and give this to kind of give someone the extra push or is this to do instead? Or I guess, how are we using these medications with statin therapy is a question that I had. Yeah. So first of all, the PCSK9 inhibitors are approved in, you know, ASCVD patients and patients who have FH as an adjunct to diet and statins for patients that uh, remain with residual elevated LDL. Uh, so, uh, so for some patients, the maximal tolerated statin is zero statin, mm. but the PCSK9 inhibitors are meant to be administered on a background of statins. In fact, both in the four-year and the Odyssey outcome trials, which were the um, outcome trials with PCSK9 inhibitors, these were patients with ASCVD who were all on a background of statins. So, um, you know, in clinical practice, uh, you know, our patients are often not at LDL goal because they're, um, you know, they, they, they feel that they can't take a higher intensity statin for whatever reason. But, you know, these are meant to be, you know, added to statin therapy. Um, so in closer in the same thing, again, this is um, approved as, uh, you know, for patients that need additional LDL lowering who are high-risk patients with ASCVD or, or, or FH. And so generally, um, this would be added to a statin and, and to, to zetamide and to the other therapy. You wouldn't use enclizerin with the monoclonal antibody PCSK9, but you would use it with a statin. Um, now, you know, what is the advantage of, you know, what would you use, which patients for enclizerin and which ones to use the monoclonal antibody PCSK9? Um, you know, I think this comes down to a shared decision making with patients. So the advantage of enclizerin is that it's every six months. So for younger patients, the thought is it might really help with adherence, you know, only one more time a year than a flu shot, uh, you know, and they could slash their LDL by 50%. Um, and so uh, definitely for patients who can't get to goal, with their statin for whatever reason, um, this might be a, a good agent. Um, you know, with the caveat that, you know, we don't have outcome trial yet data for enclizerin, it's coming. We do have outcome trial data for the monoclonal antibodies. So for patients who are already on monoclonal antibodies, you know, I'm certainly not switching them um, if they're doing well with the injections. But when I have a, a patient who I need additional LDL lowering, um, you know, I can talk to them about both options and take in patient preference, um, whether, you know, between giving the office injection versus every six months versus them doing the self-injections at home every two weeks. Yeah. So this is, I, I want to just try to recap here and, and make, sh make sure. So we, the first thing we, the first new agents we talked about were 
uh, Pelicarson, which is an ASO. I'm not going to try to remember the whole antisense uh, oligonucleotide. <laughs> uh, that's, and that's for lowering LP little a, uh, lowered it about 80%. And then there's this other one, Opisarin, which lowered LP little a about 90%. Those ones, we're waiting for them to be approved. We're waiting for the outcomes data there. Then we switched into this, okay, for this patient with very high LDL, um, we're talking about, you know, PCSK9 inhibitors. We do have outcomes data for them. We know they're very good at LDL lowering. So those are still in play, but they require, and patients can give them at home, but they have to inject them more frequently. And glycerin is a newer agent that also has about 50% LDL lowering, can be combined with statins, and it's it would be given once every six months. And that may be, for some patients, more attractive if they aren't able to or don't want to give themselves injections at home. And we're expecting that the Orion trials with this with glycerin are going to show uh, reduction in MACE just the way all the other LDL-lowering drugs have. Any Anything I'm missing there? No, that was an excellent summary. And glycerin also can lower Lipertil A by, you know, 18 to 26%. Um, as well, uh, which may have potentially some additive benefits, but it's uh, FDA approved for its LDL lowering properties. That would be great if it just becomes like a blockbuster <laughs> that is just like better than all the, you know, uh, because it has both those mechanisms. It seems pretty attractive. Maybe somebody with really high both LDL and LP little a, maybe it's uh would be a great one. Well, the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies also lower Lipertil A by 25%. Yeah. So that's what I was getting back to, why I measure it in patients. Because if they're higher risk, um, you know, they already have atherosclerosis or clinical events, um, I kind of would move quickly to the PCSK9 um, monoclonal antibodies if they have elevated LDL and elevated Lipertil A. I forgot. I, you did say I have that note. And uh, this is this is how dense we have gone. We've yeah. There's been so much new information today. This is great. And we still yeah. have... So that's an- statins, azetamide, and bempedoic acid don't lower Lipertil yeah. A. But the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies in glycerin do, but only by like 25%, which is why these new therapies that are still being studied and they're not approved, um, I'm just letting the audience know that they're out there being studied, uh, those can lower Lipertil A by by 90% because they're, you know, very specifically targeting mm-hmm. Lipertil A um, uh, uh, messenger RNA. Now, you've actually brought up bepidoic acid a couple times now, and I sort of want to get into a little bit because... I don't know what that is and how it how it differs from our other um, LDL lowering uh, therapies. It's it's an oral medicine. I, I think I Chris, know. Chris, right? just That's can I the- tell Paul? Paul, these 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 were the clear trials, and Paul, uh, they they had cute cute names. Uh, there was tranquility, serenity, mm. harmony, and wisdom. Paul, so I <laughs> I thought you would just love Paul. Paul's a big trial head, so he really likes. <laughs> Well, I mean, just just the name part, like the actual data, I'm not, I'm less interested in. But yeah, the names of the trials, yeah, all all great stuff. Cardiology ahead of the curve as always. Yeah. So, uh, bepidoic acid has also been FDA approved since uh, 2020. Um, so, it's uh, as opposed to what we were talking about before with those injectables, bepidoic acid is back to being it's an oral drug. So, it's an oral drug. It's first in class. Um, it inhibits the synthesis of cholesterol. 
So it works in the same pathway uh, that statins uh, work. So statins, you know, are HMG coase reductase inhibitors um, that block cholesterol synthesis, and uh, benpidoic acid blocks cholesterol synthesis in a step upstream. Um, it, it inhibits an enzyme uh, called ACL uh, citrase lyase, and so. With both, you know, um, anything that's blocking cholesterol synthesis, uh, the way it lowers uh, LDL is that you block cholesterol synthesis, so the hepatocyte, you know, upregulates LDL receptors, more uh, receptors on the surface of the liver, and then the receptors, you know, clear out circulating LDL from, from circulation, and so that's how it lowers LDL. Now, um, these are, you know, methadoic acid's not as, you know, potent as these monoclonal antibodies, it's, but it's kind of similar to the range of azetamide. Um, so in the Clear Harmony and Clear Wisdom trials, as you mentioned, those were on a background of statins, um, patients with ASCVD or uh, heterozygous FH who had, you know, LDLs still above 70. Um, so this was on statins and, L- and methadoic acid further lowered LDL by about 18%. Uh, but in the uh, clear serenity trial, it was patients unable to tolerate statins, and it was slightly greater LDL reduction of 21%. Um, it's also uh, been studied and, and, and uh, packaged and also as an option as a fixed-dose combination with azetamide. Um, so you can get bempidoic acid and azetamide, you know, in the same uh, pill. And uh, together, that's even more effective, about 36% lowering in LDL. Uh, so getting kind of in the range of the, the moderate to higher intensity statins. So, you know, what are the advantages? Um, well, one is that bempidoic acid is a, a prodrug that requires activation, um, and, and the enzyme to activate it is only in the liver. It's not in muscle. Um, so it does not have these muscle-associated symptoms that have been reported in statins. And we can talk about whether some of the statin-associated muscle symptoms are nocebo effects or, or largely exaggerated. Uh, but, you know, this drug doesn't have those muscle-associated effects. It doesn't work in muscle. It's very specific um, to uh, activation of liver. Uh, another um, s- advantage is that it does not seem to worsen um, glycemia or increase the risk of new onset diabetes. So one thing that we have seen with st- statins, particularly high-intensity statins, is that there's a small bump in blood glucose. And for patients that are kind of on the pathway there that already have, you know, prediabetes, it could bump the A1C, you know, to a range where they'll not be classified uh, as diabetes. Um, so statins, though, we think that, you know, still the, the, the benefit is uh, outweighs the slight increase in glycemia, and that's why we, you know we still use statins. But bepidoic acid actually doesn't have that uh, increase in glycemia. It actually seems to be associated with lower risk of diabetes. So that's um, you know really interesting. Um, bepidoic acid also lowers C-reactive protein, um, which statins do as well. So we know it lowers LDL, and so it did get FDA approved in February 2020 um, for the treatment of patients with ASCVD. Uh, heterozygous FH require LDL lowering, um, despite maximally tolerated statins. And, you know, again, a lot of patients, the maximally tolerated dose of statins is zero statins. And so I'm particularly interested with the lack of muscle effects for patients. Um, you know, this may be a, a good option. Uh, so, but we don't have the outcome data yet, but we should have that soon because the trial is already finished and, and starting to close out. Uh, so the clear outcome trial, um, 
was uh, examining whether bempedoic acid could reduce major adverse cardiovascular events in patients who were statin intolerant. So it was actually a trial of patients who were intolerant of statins. And what I was excited about is that this trial enrolled nearly half of women participants. So women are, you know, been historically under-enrolled in lipid trials and cardiovascular trials. Usually only 25% of trial participants are women. Um, but in this a trial, it's uh, about half participants are women, which is exciting. And I think this is because this is enrolling a population with statin intolerance and women are more likely than men to report statin-associated muscle symptoms. So, you know, I'm anticipating it's going to be successful. You know, we know it lowers LDL. Uh, and to date, you know, all these other therapies that lower LDL have lowered vascular events. So I'm anticipating a, a positive outcome. Um, we thinking that maybe it might be presented um, at uh, American College of Cardiology meeting in 2023. I don't know for sure, but that's sort of the rumor if they can get the, you know, the data cleared in time. So we may know as early as early next year about the outcome data, but it is already FDA approved both by itself um, or in the combination with um, azetamide. So it's a, a good option for a patient um, that uh, wants a, an oral agent. Now, I, I, I saw that there might be some risk of uric acid or gout attacks with this. Like, do I need to be checking uric acid levels in our patients if this is going to be one of those other medicines that I, I will be using for my statin intolerant patients? Yeah, so they can um, elevate uric acid levels. So if you have a patient who has had gout or um you know, that's something to be, you know, mindful of and discuss, uh, you know, w with with patients for that. Um, you know, it's not necessarily required that you measure uric acid to follow on this therapy if patients, you know, don't have a history of gout. Um, you know, I personally tend to get kind of a baseline level just to, to see. Um, but, uh, you know, the risk is, is, is modest and um, unless a patient actually uh, has uh, significant episodes of gout, then, you know, that might factor in um, that decision. And we'll know more from the large outcome trial. So we'll know a lot more about safety. Was that also creatinine elevation? It, uh, the, the source I was reading, it didn't really mention whether it was significant. It just mentioned uric acid and creatinine might be raised. But I don't know if that's if that's something that's been like a major signal out of these uh, these other trials and the safety. Uh, no, I mean the, the safety has been you know pretty good with with this the slight increase in uric acid and the other thing which um, was possible this tendon rupture um, it was seen uh, in one of the small trials and the mechanism for that really isn't clear and they're wondering if you know it was spurious. Uh, so we'll, you know, we'll really have to see when that reports out um, in the, uh, the clear outcomes trial. So to recap here, bempedoic acid, less potent, uh, maybe on the order of what we can expect lowering with azetamibe, and it can, can be given for patients maybe if they're statin intolerant or just as add-on therapy. And it also comes, you said, in a combination, like fixed-dose combination with azetamibe and uh this you said you said the outcomes are it's FDA approved, but we're still waiting on these outcomes. Well, Ivanakumab right now is only FDA approved in homozygous FH, but um, you know there are other agents that are being studied for NHPTL three. Um, I, mean, I can briefly, um, you know, NHPTL3 is a inhibitor of lipase and endothelial lipase, which is responsible for um, triglyceride uh, metabolism. 
um, and HDL respectively. And so we, you know, we saw uh, from genetic studies that individuals who have loss of function mutations in ANGPTL3 um, have very low levels of triglycerides and, and LDL. Um, and why it may uh, particularly be useful in homozygous FH is that uh, the redu reduction in, in LDL levels is, is independent of the LDL receptor. So all those other drugs we were talking about work by upregulating the LDL receptor, but this is works um, independent of the LDL receptor. So that's helpful for homozygous FH because those individuals really don't have any LDL receptors or have very few or ineffective LDL receptors. So this is uh, helpful for that. Um, now, inhibition of um, ANGPTL3 is also being studied as a potential therapy for elevated triglycerides. And vupinorsin was an angiotensin-sense uh, oligonucleotide, ASO, targeting ANGPTL3 mRNA. And so earlier this year, the Translate to Me 70 trial was published um, that evaluated vupinorsin in patients who had elevated non-HDL and elevated triglyceride despite statin therapy. And um, vupinorsin, which, you know, again, is an ASO targeting NGPTL3, you know, did significantly reduce triglycerides by, you know, 40 to 60 percent, uh, reduced uh, modestly ApoB and, and modestly reduced LDL. So it, it lowered non-HDL like it was supposed to. But unfortunately, it was associated with increased risk of liver fat and elevated LFTs. So this, um, you know, led to the announcement that the, the clinical program for this particular agent is not moving forward, but it does open the door for other investigational therapies, uh, specifically targeting uh, ANGPTL3. Well, speaking of triglycerides, Chris, uh, wh yes. what's the last thing we wanted to talk about on the agenda? Yeah. So say our, our patient, instead of having LDL of 250, he has a triglyceride of 250. And, you know, I, I remember back to my residency days when we're using like ATP3 and, you know, our treat, you know, we're, we're targeting LDLs because we know that triglycerides, you know, we've, we've tried to reduce them with fire rates, but they don't, we don't really see the outcome. So people with high triglycerides, we target their LDL. Um, but since, you know, we've had a couple of new trials, new medications talking about triglyceride lowering, we have the reduced trial that talk about ethyl, and we've, We've done it on a couple of hot cakes. We've talked. We, we've talked about icosapentene ethyl a bunch on on, on uh, the curbsiders. I was wondering, you know, can you can you give us a little brief rehash of what icosapentene ethyl is? How is it different from like other omega three uh, agents, and how does it how does it help us in our management of um, of lipids in our patients? Great. Yeah. So elevated triglycerides, you know, are a risk enhancing factor. So, uh, especially for, you know, moderate hypertriglyceridemia, you'd still start with treatment with a statin and lifestyle is really important. I just, before we get to these drugs, I want to emphasize that, um, much more so than LDL, triglycerides are very responsive to, you know, weight loss. Even modest amounts of weight loss can influence triglyceride levels, uh, and, you know, dietary changes, uh, Reducing um, saturated fats, um, having more of the polyunsaturated uh, fats, uh, reducing uh, simple carbs, reducing alcohol, increasing physical activity. It's all really important for management of elevated triglycerides. Um, so in, um, as you mentioned, um, niacin and fibrates, uh, um, you know, all of the fibrate trials to date have not shown um, reduction in um, reducing ASCVD events on a background of statins. We had held hope for pemba fibrate uh, 
Um, and it hasn't been published yet, but they announced that the prominent trial of patients with um, diabetes and elevated uh, triglycerides that was stopped early for fertility. So it seems like yet another fibrate um, was unsuccessful in reducing vascular events. So the REDUCE-IT trial uh, with Iquismet ethyl studied um, patients with ASCVD, diabetes, um, another, with another risk factor who had well-controlled LDLs on statin therapy, but had a residual moderate hypertriglyceridemia, you know, 135 to 500, uh, compared this high-dose EPA at four grams a day compared to placebo and showed um, a really dramatic 25% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. And, you know, it, 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 we did not see this with other uh, agents that were combined, EPA and DHA, notably the STRENGTH trial, uh, which also studied a high-dose omega-3 formulation with, uh, you know, did not reduce uh, cardiovascular events. It was really as null as you can get. Um, but this was, you know, combined EPA and DHA, so, you know, EPA and DHA are chemically different. Uh, you know, uh, EPA has 20 carbons and five double bonds, and DHA has 22 carbons, six double bonds. And, you know, that might sound pretty similar, but keep in mind that, you know, estrogen and testosterone are actually very chemically similar, and only modest differences between those two structures, you know, have dramatic, you know, biological effects. So even small chemical differences um, can influence things. We know that um, EPA and DHA inserts differently in cell membranes. So EPA being shorter, um, uh, you know, inserts in cell membranes in a more organized uh, fashion, uh, leading to membrane stability, where DHA is more disorganized. It's longer, it, you know, crinkles, so it um, has more membrane fluidity, and thus leads to um, uh, more cholesterol uh, aggregation in, 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 the, in, the, in the cellular membrane. So they are different, and, you know, proteomic studies have suggested that, you know, EPA may... Um, downregulate sort of anti-inflammatory uh, proteins, uh, sorry, uh, upregulate anti-inflammatory proteins and, and downregulate an inflammatory proteins. So they do seem to have biological mechanisms. So, you know, it is hard to reconcile, rec reconcile strength and reduce it, but they are different agents. Um, and, uh, you know, that we do know the you know, blood levels of EPA matter. Uh, it may be that, you know, with EPA, with the for four grams a day that you're really getting to these blood levels above 100, uh, that although it may not be um, influenced by achieved levels of triglycerides, but achieved levels of EPA may, may, may matter. And it may be that DHA, you know, offsets some of the benefits of EPA, that I don't think DHA is toxic in and of itself, but it may block or, um, you know, reduce some of the uh, beneficial effects we think of EPA of being anti-inflammatory and anti-thrombotic. Did you did you see there was um I guess it came out and I can't remember which journal it was but just yeah. talking about so, the placebo maybe it wasn't inert the so strength had like corn oil placebo and reduce it used a mineral oil placebo and that the it, the placebo group in the reduce it trial actually had an elevation of CRP versus the placebo group in the strength trial had a reduction in CRP. So they were thinking maybe there was some sort of pro-inflammatory effect of the mineral oil placebo and reduce it. And that's why it made the intervention arm with the EPA look better. So I don't know, but that was that was something that came out. And I, Chris, is that what you were getting? Yeah, that, 
That was in yeah. June. Just, just, just came out in June in circulation. And uh, yeah, so this was known to the FDA. I mean, I mean, they knew this when this was originally published. You know, I'm really not sure what these you know biomarker data means. Yeah. Exactly. So they, the reason why they use mineral oil is because they really wanted to have a true placebo that was identical in appearance. So they needed a clear oil um, that mimicked, you know, the oil of the EPA that looked, you know, very similar. Um, and that's why that was used um, for, for blinding. Um, you know, it was, you know, hard to think that such a small amount, you know, two tablespoons a day could really, you know, offset it, it that much. Uh, you know, uh, there has been reviews of other studies that use mineral oil that didn't really find, you know, a clinical relevant effect that, you know, that they, you know, would reduce, um, you know, you know, cause, cause harm. But, um, you know, the FDA, this was known that, so the fact that, um, so yes, so in the mineral oil arm, there was a, uh, increase in LDL and an increase in CRP that, um, those biomarkers were not, um, affected in the, uh, ethyl treatment arm. Um, and so it's hard to know what that means. So this was available to the FDA and they did, you know, review secondary analysis. They looked at comparing EPA to the control group that did not have an LDL elevation or did not have a CRP elevation and showed that the findings were robust in those sensitivity analyses. So, you know, it's hard to think that, I don't think it's a good thing that the mineral oil raised CRP and, and, and LDL slightly. Um, you know, those certainly, you know, doesn't appear like that's, you know, that's probably not a good thing, but I don't know that that could explain away a 25% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. I don't think it could explain away all of the results. Mm -hmm. So maybe the results would not have been that traumatic. You know, 25% uh, is a really big reduction. So maybe um, if there had not been this, you know, increase in the uh, uh, comparator arm, the mineral oil arm, um, you know, maybe the effect wouldn't be, you know, as great as was seen. But I don't think that it really could, um, you know, explain away the all of the benefit. But to be honest, we really, we don't really know what it means. Um, you know, we don't know what these elevations of biomarkers necessarily increase risk. That's not proven, um, you know, how much the, the CRP bump really, you know, affects the, you know, the translation of risk. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, I, I take that into account uh, a little bit, but we, we really, you know, the findings are a little bit uncertain about what this means in terms of interpreting the overall trial result. So people haven't just completely abandoned uh, eicosapent enthyl because of this uh, this question. It's still something people may be using in, in certain select patients. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, LDL lowering is still, you know, the first line. So even in reduce it trial, these are all well-treated patients um, who are on statin. And we're not doing a good job uh, with making, you know, have patients being treated, um, you know, in the first place uh, with with therapies that we know that we work uh, in the, you know, the Gould registry, for example, of patients with ASCVD, you know, two-thirds of patients uh, remained with an LDL above 70. Uh, and over a two-year period, only 17% had their lipid-lowering therapy intensified. Uh, so we're not doing a good job with getting to patients, you know, to go uh, um, with their LDL therapy. So we need to do better about that. Paul, does this surprise but yes, you? I <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> How are we doing? But, but yes, I still use glycosamine ethyl in patients who, you know, I do get their LDL down who have elevated triglycerides if they're high risk, if they have yeah. ASCVD or diabetes and risk factors. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I'm laughing. I, I 
I'm laughing at the fact that we're not lowering LDL enough, but it's it's like we're not even, I think more than half of patients with high blood pressure aren't controlled under 140, over, even if you look at 140 over 90, not even the 130 over 80. So I, I think it's just clinical practice is hard. Uh, it's hard to get patients to take the medicine. Uh, it's it's hard to overcome inertia sometimes, you know, adding medication and making changes. Paul, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. Like, No, I, I, I think it's it's really exciting to have all these agents to be having these conversations. I do think if you're having this discussion, your patients are probably in pretty good shape because I think a lot of the times, I, I, I can't remember the percentage. I, I think it's in one of the articles that we reviewed in preparation for this, but like patients with preferred arterial disease, like so who have known ASCVD, like the percentage that are just not even treated with statin therapy is, is sort of staggering. So I think you're your point about just thinking about <laughs> just being diligent yeah. and, and really doing using the tools you have at your disposal before you get too fancy with things is, is, is well taken. But at least we have other agents that we didn't have before. So unfortunately, I encounter maybe this because it referred to me a lot of statin reluctance. Um, and, uh, you know, there there seems to be this bad PR out there about statins, even yep. though we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of patients in clinical trials and overwhelming safety data. But there's this exaggeration of the thought that statins cause muscle damage when really, you know, severe muscle injury is like, you know, one in 100,000. It's incredibly rare. And, you know, there was just a paper out in Lansing it again, a meta-analysis, uh, really showing this nocebo effect that, you know, 90% of these, uh, you know, reported statin-associated symptoms, you know, are elicited, uh, you know, by uh, the, the placebo too, that are, they're not true drug effects, that they are, you know, if you think something's going to harm you, this, uh, yeah. you have, you're more perceived to have this risk. So we, patients aren't being treated with statins, but while we try to, you know, work with them, you know, the, the statin side effects, the statin-associated symptoms, you know, feel real to them. And they, um, but the, the good news is that we have things that we can offer them. So, you know, we have bempedoic acid, we have the PCSK9 inhibitors, we have enclizerin, you know, for the higher risk patients. So we have more options and more tools than we ever did before. So we really need to, you know, get get patients to goal quicker. So I would just encourage thinking for your very high risk patients, be thinking about combination therapy early and upfront. Um, you know, this sequential approach, you know, takes too long. Um, there's now data showing, you know, benefit of, you know, um, if you give PCSK9 in the hospital immediately after acute coronary syndrome event, not only is that safe, but you know, you can show plaque reduction on, on, on IVIS. And so be thinking about administering these early and then um, titrating every four to 12 weeks uh, if you're not at goal to be intensifying therapy. Well, I think that's a great place to the, end. She just gave us the take-home points, yeah. right? <laughs> this this has been fantastic. Probably we'll need a part three with you once we have outcomes data and for you to help talk us through how these are all being put into practice as we we have that data and they become more widely available and widely used. But thank you so much and uh, can't thank you enough for all the time tonight. Thanks again for having me. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Oh, great. Get show note. <laughs> I don't know why that one threw me of all the ones we've been doing for seven years. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, plus twice each month. You'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also send an email to 
askcurbsiders at gmail.com. That's right, askcurbsiders at gmail.com, Paul. We changed it. Um, and a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Wanted to give a special thanks to Dr. Chris the Chew Man Chew for writing and producing this episode and to our whole team. The show is produced and edited by Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wada. This has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.